Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to ACOM's Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name is James Banks and I'm Head of External Relations in Europe, the Middle East and Africa for ACOM. Today, we're going to be discussing natural capital. In other words, thinking of nature as a set of assets that provide benefits to people and organisations, specifically the role of ACOM's Natural Capital Laboratory in demonstrating the value of conserving and enhancing such assets and the benefits these assets can bring. Joining me to explain far more comprehensively and expertly, I hope, are three members of the Natural Capital Laboratory team. Firstly, from the University of Cumbria, is Professor of Environment and Society Ian Convery. During his 20-year career, Ian has worked for agencies such as the UN, African Development Bank and the International Red Cross. He believes we cannot understand nature and environmental issues unless we understand societal interactions with, connections to, and perceptions of the natural world. Up next is Adam Eagle. Adam is a lawyer by background and chief executive of the LifeScape project, which, motivated by the significant degradation of the world's ecosystems, was established in 2017 to make a real difference in the protection of the global ecosystem and undertake ecological restoration. And finally, from ACOM, is Principal Environmental Economist Chris White. Chris's primary area of work focuses on natural capital and ecosystem services, working with businesses and governments to account for their environmental impacts, quantifying environmental values in monetary terms, and designing market-based instruments for use in public policy. Welcome, everybody. Hi there. Hi, Jim. Adam, can we come to you first of all as a chief exec of the of the LifeScape project? All three of you are actually members of that project. Can you just give me a little bit of background on, on what the project's all about? Absolutely, and and thank you very much, James, for the introductions and a very good description of the charity. We're essentially a wildlife conservation charity, but more specifically, the world that we want to see is one that has a global landscape where wild nature can coexist and thrive alongside humanity and where humanity in turn can thrive alongside wild nature. What we want to see is the ecosystems which have been destroyed in our world start to be restored so that natural processes can take over there again. We want nature to thrive in its wild state, but whilst channeling the huge potential benefits toward human society at the same time. And you know those benefits are you know well examined um, in many areas. You have carbon sequestration, disease regulation, air quality, water security, benefits to the well-being of people, which I think a lot of us are experiencing during the current crisis, needing a bit more access to nature. The way that we work towards that vision is that we select and execute specific innovative projects in different fields or different disciplines. And every project tries to do something that's completely groundbreaking in order to either carry out, promote, or to facilitate rewilding and ecosystems being restored. And the Natural Capital Laboratory is one of those projects. It's an innovative project uh, promoting and working on those areas. 
Great. Th- thanks, Adam. A nice segue into the Natural Capital Laboratory. Chris, this is what we're here to talk about today. What is the laboratory? What's the history? What are we trying to achieve with it? So the laboratory, it's a, it's a joint project between Acom the Lifescape Project. And essentially what it is, is a live outdoor experiment. We're looking at developing new approaches, new techniques, to measure and monitor environmental social change and look at the benefits of investing and restoring natural capital assets. A lot of the work we do with our clients uh, in the public and private sector uh, is increasingly looking at the environment as an asset and trying to understand the benefits that it can provide to organizations of wider society. And doing that on a commercial basis can be difficult and challenging and a lot of people don't have the, the time or the resources to invest in the approaches that are needed to do so. And what we wanted to do for the, for the laboratory was set up a space whereby different organizations could get together and start to collaborate to develop the approaches that we need to better understand the value that the environment provides. And so there's four main parts of the laboratory. The first is in itself looking at rewilding and restoring the natural capital on a site up in Scotland. It's a beautiful site up in Northern Highlands, not far from Loch Ness. It's about 100 acres of mostly sort of plantation forest um, and clear felled area. And the team are looking at how we can rewild the site and bring native forests back and look at bringing species back and engaging with the community around the natural environment in their area. Then as we're doing so, as the site changes and as the site rewilds, we want to set up this sort of laboratory whereby we're collecting as much data as we possibly can. So we want to know every beetle that crawls across every grade of grass, every unit of carbon that's stored in each tree, and every um, red squirrel running across the site. We want to know basically everything that's going on the site and how it's changing over time. And to do that, we're trying to put together new approaches and new technologies that allow us to do that more effectively and for cheaper. So looking at um, using remote sensing data, um, using AI, using robotics to collect the information that's needed to understand what's happening on the site. And then once we've got that information, we're bringing it together and quantifying and measuring the change each year. So looking at the benefits and the values in monetary terms of the carbon stored, the health benefits to people who've been out to the site and have improved well-being and the increases in biodiversity. And then the final kind of aim of the lab is to, once we've got that data, once we've got that understanding of how things are changing each year, get better at communicating that to a wider range of audience. So whereas we might normally produce a long technical report and set of spreadsheets that nobody would read, we want to look at developing more engaging ways of communicating what's happening on the site and why it's a really good idea to invest in natural capital and restoring systems. Um, so we're developing a virtual reality system which allow users to look at the site and look how it's changing over time into the future. And also web-based platforms which allow users virtually to visit the site, and zoom in on different aspects and find out more of the information about how things are changing and what that actually looks like in practice. If we could try and sort of break some of it down, let's start with rewilding. Ian, what do we mean when we talk about rewilding? This is what I've always wondered. Rewilding and restoration, what are the differences? Are we we talking about the same thing there? 
working on, on that question, actually, what is rewilding as, as part of an ICN group? And the idea is that we're going to come up with a set of rewilding principles. So maybe if I just talk through the kind of current working definition of rewilding, which is based on a, a systematic lit review that we've carried out and some discussions with many people involved in rewilding, kind of both past and, and present. But rewilding essentially is the process of rebuilding natural ecosystems following major human disturbance. And the aim is to create a complete food web at all trophic levels as a sustainable and resilient ecosystem using biota that would have been present had that disturbance not, not occurred. So that's a major shift. That's a paradigm shift, really, in terms of the relationship between humans and, and the natural world. And the goal of rewilding really is to restore functioning native ecosystems are complete with fully occupied trophic levels and nature-led across a range of different landscape scales. And I think that nature-led thing is really important. Now, I'll come back to that when I talk about restoration. Um, so rewilded ecosystems should be self-sustaining, which means really that they should require little or no intervention management. And part of that is recognising that ecosystems are, are dynamic and they're not static. They've got to change over time. And that's a really important point to emphasise as well, because... Certainly what rewilding isn't is not about going back to the past. It's not about recreating an ecosystem or a landscape from 5,000 or 10,000 years ago. It's very much a kind of forward-looking philosophy. So in terms of the kind of principles or the ideas that we're starting to uh, develop for the ICN around rewilding, I'll talk through those kind of quite quickly. First is the idea that rewilding uses wildlife as ecosystem engineers, using wildlife to restore trophic interactions. So I'm sure much of the audience will be familiar with the concept of, of keystone species and the idea of trophic cascades, that once you have the right assemblage of species within an ecosystem, that ecosystem starts to restore natural function. Rewilding is landscape scale in terms of planning, and that's very much bound up in this idea of, kind of core areas for conservation, connectivity across that landscape, but also coexistence too. And that coexistence requires local engagement and local support. There's a focus on the recovery of ecological process, interactions and conditions are based on reference ecosystems. But again, it's not about creating something from the past. It's about looking forward. Uh, and, and that recognition that ecosystems are dynamic and they're constantly changing. And that's important because of the kind of current state of the world where everything is in flux at the minute, but also in terms of how we deal with um, potential future environmental issues like how we respond to climate change and the impact of climate change on particular ecosystems. Rewilding should be informed by good science, but it should also be informed by local knowledge and local expertise. And it's about recognising the intrinsic value of all species. So I think there's something really important there in terms of our worldview and in terms of how we transition from our current anthropocentric worldview to something which is much more biocentric or ecocentric in terms of our relationship with nature. This next point kind of links, I guess, very much to the NCL on that it should be adaptive and dependent on good quality monitoring and feedback data. And I suppose if you stick all that stuff together, what it's about is essentially a paradigm shift, an opportunity to think again about our relationship to the natural world and to think about how we coexist with nature in a different way. So Ian, okay, so that's rewilding, but how does that differ to restoration? I suppose if, if you wanted the kind of simple response to that, whilst all rewilding is restoration, not all restoration is rewilding. Because rewilding emphasises the autonomy of ecological process in a kind of controlled, decontrolling way. 
wildness isn't the absence of people. It's a level of non-human agency. And it's bringing back that nature-led approach, which is kind of fundamental to rewilding. And also it's this idea that it's, it's a paradigm shift. It's around the kind of hearts and minds arguments about how we get people to re-engage with the natural world. So the two concepts are, are linked. They're, you know, they're very much part of the same family, but they are differences between them. Interesting. So the laboratory that we're discussing, Adam, what, what makes it unique? What's it makes it special? But from my perspective, the Natural Capital Laboratory is the only project out there which is building the knowledge and technologies that we need to measure and to demonstrate and to communicate the value to society of ecosystem restoration and rewilding work um, in such a systematic, quantifiable and ambitious way as the AECOM team have designed. Chris, when you were this idea was first hatched, what were, what did you envisage? You know, we're, it's worth pointing out we're we're a year into this project now. Is it going as you expected? What are all the lessons that you've learned along the way? <laughs> well, when we started off, the very first initial discussions, we didn't really have a clear set of outcomes about what we wanted to achieve. We knew broadly the kinds of things we'd like to do. We knew we'd like to have a place where we could try out new techniques and do research and apply it and and collect data and analyze it and look at new ways of presenting it to feed into environmental projects. But the details of it were, well, the scope of what it would actually entail, we didn't really know at the time. I think, I mean, the most surprising and exciting thing, and one of the reasons why I think it is really unique is just the scale at which people have like taken up the idea and wanted to get involved. We often like talk about collaboration and working with other people and other organizations and trying to get different perspectives around the table. A lot of the time it's quite difficult in practice to do so. But what's been really good about this project is, I mean, there's a team of about 60 people over the the year, the first year that have been involved. And this has involved um, social specialists, drone pilots, computer statisticians, economists, uh, lawyers, scientists. There's a whole range of different expertise that are coming together to work on this project. And it's not just one type of uh, organization as well. We've got ACOM and the private sector side. There's people from the charity sector and wildlife conservation side. And then there's also the academic research side as well from the University of Cumbria. And yeah, it's been really exciting to see all these people working together and coming up with ideas and thinking about things in a new way. How will this benefit both public and private sector? I think that's something that often people struggle with when you look at these kind of projects is that they're extremely interesting, but so what? Yeah, there's definite distinction as well. There's what's going on on the site, which, not to do it down, but it's a fairly small site in the scheme of things, which is not going to, you know, save the world from climate change by diversity loss by itself. But what we're doing on the site and the things that we're learning and the solution and research that are coming out of the project are directly applicable to pretty much anywhere in the world and anywhere where people and organizations are looking at um, managing land and thinking about managing climate change and biodiversity loss. The solutions and the, the research that on site are directly relevant to solving those problems. I guess there's a reason why if we take the kind of five capitals approach, so natural capital, social capital, human capital, financial capital and manufactured capital, there's a reason why everything is nested within natural capital. Because if we don't manage 
natural capital or sustainability, there won't be any manufactured capital or financial capital or social capital or human capital. Everything is dependent on how we manage natural capital. And that's been missing from mainstream economics for, well, until the last 20 years or so. So I think that's a really fundamentally important point to make. If we don't look after natural capital, it threatens our own existence as a species. This very conversation is one we're having a lot with our clients and have been for the last couple of years. There's been a real like growing interest in the private and the public sector around better understanding and recognising the value of, of the environment and what it actually does for society and how it underpins almost every aspect of what we do. And so in pretty much every organisation we work with, almost certainly every organisation in the next five to ten years, is setting themselves a, a net zero target. And nature-based solutions, so restoring peatlands, planting trees and allowing forests to regrow, are an incredible way of, of helping to meet those targets, but also providing a whole range of other benefits. And in the UK as well, as another growing emphasis in environmental policy around delivering biodiversity net gain. And what we're trying to do in the lab is to come up with ways of enabling organisations to better understand and implement these kinds of goals and targets. What's actually on the land, Adam, if I was to come up to the edge of Loch Ness now and, and see the, the laboratory, what would I be greeted with? So the, the site is a bit of a mosaic at the moment. The rewilding work only began essentially one to two years ago. And what we have, you know, when I look out of my window right now, I can see an area of conifer plantation. And if I look to the right down the hill, I can see native woodland on the sites. And um, there are some areas of bog. And then there are also some areas which were clear felled prior to the project beginning. And so we actually we have a mosaic of habitat types on site right now. And the rewilding aspect of the project over the 100 acres is to allow the natural processes to return to this site and allow native ecosystems to, to come back, either through assisting them. So in some cases, planting trees bringing Scots pine back to the site for the first time in a very long time, um, and in some cases, allowing nature to do its own thing. And probably at this point, I should point out that we the project doesn't actually own the land, that's right. It's um, It's been very kindly lent to us. I spoke to the owners earlier today, sadly they couldn't make this recording, but we can hear now from them when I asked them about why they'd lent this bit of land to the project and what they hoped to uh, hope the lab would achieve. I'm Emilia Lees. And I'm Roger Lees. My husband and I purchased the property in 2017. We had been looking for a suitable forest project for about five years. We were inspired by a number of things, including our involvement with Trees for Life. We had met Alan Watson Featherstone some years ago, and that was inspiring. My husband has always had a lifelong interest in forests. And his involvement in the LifeScape project kind of brought everything together. What was really exciting for me was the enthusiasm immediately shown by Chris and then the wider ACOM team to get involved and to develop the NCL idea. And that took off incredibly quickly, really, with lots of brilliant ideas as to how we might make that work. Well, it's been fantastic to see the inventory of species in terms of flora and fauna that we've already been able to identify, as well as to be able to see how people interact with the ideas of the project itself. 
and how excited they are by it and how people are into it. They're really into it. Actually, what's impressed me has been the technical side of it or the technology side of it. I never thought as we were sort of starting this that, you know, we'd have things like the drone footage and the 3D work and the idea of a sort of virtual uh, world in which you could see how the property is going to look in 30 years time. Those sorts of innovative ideas are great to see. And recently we had demonstrated to us the software and, and the way the information gathered already is being presented in a really accessible and, and fun way. And that's great to see that we're so far on in such a relatively short period of time. Chris, if I can pick up on what Roger was mentioning there around the, the innovation, what are we doing in the laboratory? What are these, you know, you mentioned drones, virtual reality. What are the benefits of bringing these, uh, these innovative techniques to this project? I mean, I think one of the main emphases and one of the area we've been particularly concerned on is making things more cost effective. There's an ongoing issue or challenge facing biodiversity and, you know, managing natural capital assets is that it can be really costly and expensive and challenging to get information and measure change over time and look at how species or habitats are doing. And this is particularly the case if your site's in a remote area or in a kind of an unsafe or dangerous area, which a lot of kind of like wilder areas are. So one of the things we wanted to do particularly is try and come up with ways where you can collect this information and analyze it and process it in a much cheaper and much more cost-effective way. I think one of the big challenges we've been facing, um, particularly at the moment, not being able to leave the house, is how you can collect data from your computers and not have to send people out and sign to the field to collect information. And we've been working closely on using drone technology to fly over the site and record what's going on above and below ground, different sensors, and then putting that into a computer model so you can see the site and look at how things are changing over time. And then also looking at satellite data, which is becoming, it's getting cheaper and cheaper and um, ever increasingly more accurate and updated more quickly and developing processes and algorithms that can take this information and, and give you an almost live updated picture of what's happening in areas around the world. I mean, the main area of innovation has just been trying to come up with ways where we can take a lot of technologies which are used in other sectors um, and you know, large infrastructure projects with large budgets often deploy these technologies. And what we're trying to do is, is use those in environmental projects to make these more feasible for organisations going forward. Ian, how does this help with the work that you're doing at the University of Cumbria? How does this feed in? This is kind of cutting edge stuff in many respects in that natural capital is very much a, a new and emerging concept. It's really important that our students are able to engage with these ideas and test these ideas out. So that, that's all fantastic. I think as well, it's a really useful case study in terms of how you restore site and how you move from restoration through to rewilding. And I think at the minute, the site is very much at that kind of restoration stage. It's been human-led to enable nature. The idea of rewilding is that we flip that and it, the site ends up being nature-led and human-enabled. And that transition, I think, would be really interesting to kind of watch almost in real time, actually, in terms of how the site evolves over time. I think the other thing as well is that John Lawton wrote uh, Making Spades for Nature, the Lawton Report in, in 2010. There was a lot of talk about landscape connectivity and networks. 
And what Chris has just been talking about in terms of technology and technological development is actually an extra layer of connectivity across the landscape, which we probably wouldn't have been able to see uh, back in 2010. So that technological development actually is really kind of cutting edge. And it's really important for us that our students get to see that and get to understand it. In that. I think just to add on that, there is that last point around getting people to see and understand is a really key one. I mean, a lot of the time, if you're doing kind of environmental work or talking about things like natural capital assets and flows and measuring things like soil carbon or water quality, it can be quite dry. And it's a shame because the sites themselves are these really spectacularly beautiful areas. But when you reduce them down to the numbers, it's quite a difficult way to communicate and engage people. And a lot of what we've been trying to do is try and make this information much more accessible to people so that you, know, you can communicate what it means to restore a site and uh, how carbon filters through the atmosphere and is stored in different types of vegetation and how your land management decisions that you make today and how you decide to interact with land and nature will have you know huge implications for what the future landscape is going to look like. I'm just going back to you, the point really about what we're trying to measure. What are the benefits trying to what, what actually are you looking at? You mentioned using drones, and I know that we've been using virtual reality, etc. What are we actually trying to see over the life of this project? Is it, and it's a five-year project, if that's right, so four years left. Yeah, that's the plan. Although, I mean, I think this project is probably going to kind of run and run. We've committed to five years, but in reality, it's going to take quite a while for the forest itself to come back. So... The principal idea of what we're doing in year one was to try and get a, a baseline picture of what the site looks like now. So we wanted to basically look at what habitats were there, what condition they were in. So looking at things like soil quality, water quality, air quality, what species are using the site and where they were moving. One of the things we did was fill the place with camera traps to see what animals were there. Um, got some great footage of red squirrels and pine martins and badgers. And taking that information, trying to understand which parts of the site are important for biodiversity. And then also looking at trying to quantify some of the benefits that are coming from the site already. So we've been looking at measuring how much carbon is stored each year by the vegetation. We've been looking at how the site acts as a sort of natural sponge to absorb flood water during times of flooding. Looking at how it can help to filter out pollutants from the water and from the air as well. And also looking at the benefits people get from going to the site and being outside and seeing the uh, beautiful natural environment. And that's sort of like social interaction with human side, I think is really important. One of the areas we've been doing a lot of work on is around understanding sort of social capital and how interactions with the environment and with other people on the site and on the project has generated benefits for in terms of skills development, learning opportunities, creativity, inspiration, uh, one of the things we did early on the site was because we, we often talk about how, you know, getting involved in this kind of project or being outside can be really good for your health and well-being. What we're trying to do in the project is get real kind of quantitative data that we can measure that impact. So we covered everybody, went to the site in sensors and monitored their heart rate and pulse rate and blood pressure and asked them how they were doing five times a day. And we did that while they were at the site and also before and afterwards when they were in their office and at home just to see whether there was any evidence that things change. And it was really interesting to see. I mean, there's only a sort of small preliminary survey of the people who are going to the site. But there were clear drops in levels of anxiety, lower blood pressure, decreased heart rate, and increased sense of satisfaction and self-worth and happiness. So 
even though it was very small scale, it was really interesting to see that data coming together and kind of confirming some of the things we'd already thought, but providing the sort of the clear evidence base of those benefits. And I think, Chris, that, that links to evidence from elsewhere in terms of the health and well-being benefits of spending time in nature. So, you know, it's, it's very much what we would probably would expect to happen. But often with restoration projects, people count the stuff that's easier to count, like species diversity or vegetation change. And they don't often count the things that are difficult and tricky, like how people feel or perceive about site and site changes and the aesthetics of site. So I think it's really important that part of this project is about that kind of social interaction and finding ways to capture how people feel about the site as the site develops. Adam, you're, you're, you're living on site, if, is that right? Yes, that's right. What, what's the reaction? I mean, we heard the sort of the scientific reaction, the data reaction of, of people visiting. What do you hear from people when they visit the site and they hear about the project? I mean, when people visit the sites, I think it's fair to say that everyone in the team that's come up and all the volunteers, all the people at ACOM have had really, really positive experiences. I think getting out into nature here on site is, is just positive from a well-being perspective, like Chris was talking about. The level of excitement that we've seen around the project and the concept of having this living laboratory has been really you know, incredible and has blown us away over the past 12 to 18 months as, as the idea was developed and then is being implemented. You know, We've seen organisations from all over the UK, even all over the world, reach out and want to be involved in watching or, or helping to develop the technologies to measure and then communicate the natural capital changes on the site. So from a natural capital laboratory perspective, we've had really incredible engagement on it. Chris, going back to something that Roger said around the, the web tool, the web platform that we're, we're developing, can you expand on that? This is helping with communicating a lot of the benefits and a lot of the findings, is that right? Yeah, early on we had a discussion around how the end of the first year is going to be considered a failure if all we come up with is a really detailed technical report, a Word document that nobody looks at. So we wanted to have something that we could share to people, which would capture some of the kind of beauty and excitement and you know life of the site. So what we've developed is a web platform, which you can access it anywhere. So anyone can log on, have a look at what's going on in the site. And then through a very simple system of like menus and a Google Maps type interface, you can explore around the site. You can see what's going on in different habitats. You can learn more about where the species are located. You can learn where the carbon's being sequestered, and you can use that information to kind of understand what's happening and look at the progress of the site over time. So, in one example, we've been we've been flying um, drones over the site in a fixed path. Uh, so every season, the drone pilot uh, goes up beginning of spring, summer, autumn, winter, and flies the drones around the same paths. And then that footage has been put together into a sort of time lapse footage. So you can watch in real time how the seasons are changing over the site over the course of the year. And then over the course of the project, you'll be able to watch the same video and see how the habitats are changing and what things look like when we talk about planting trees or restoring native woodland. You'll be able to see very visually what it actually looks like as woodland restores or peat bogs improve or what that kind of thing looks like. And just to add what Chris said, I think that, that goes to one of the key things about the project from Lifescape's perspective, which is allowing society, whether that's individuals, whether it's governments or whether it's businesses, to understand what the benefits, what the natural capital on the site actually is. And the ACOM team have been developing these incredible ways of demonstrating that and communicating that. And then that allows society to take that natural capital, those benefits flowing from this sort of project, 
into their decision making processes as we progress as society. And that allows us to properly account for the benefits that nature provides in our decision making. I think that also reflects the kind of direction of travel for policy too, and that we've got the 25 year plan, which is going to lead to the environment bill. And that's very much around this idea of community engagement with nature, restoring habitat, reintroducing species, but with people kind of at the heart of that. So I think it's another kind of really important part of the project is that it's linking with the way that policy is developing. Yeah, I, I mean, that sort of brought me on to my next question, and I think probably half answered it, was, you know, how scalable is this work? I mean, still from my, my with my cynical hat on, and say I'm a, a large landowner down the southeast, maybe in, inside the M25, for example, why should I be interested in what's going on in a small part of Scotland? How is that going to affect me? That's a good question. It does seem like it's focused on this sort of small piece of, of land, but and what we're doing through the project is developing and trying to come up with approaches that can be used anywhere. So take the kind of like remote sensing work, for example, the idea that you can download satellite data, press a button and an algorithm will tell you what habitat you've got, what condition it's in. It doesn't matter if you're in a nice, beautiful area in the remote corner of Northern Scotland or in your office in London, that same approach can be used to tell you about what's going on in your area. And the approaches that we're developing are sort of directly usable for different projects. I think, you know, they can be scaled up or scaled down to meet particular contexts or, or situations. And you can move from a kind of reasonably high level scale to a, a more local regional scale. And you should be able to use this pretty much the same kind of suite of measures. And that, that's really what we're kind of aiming for with the NCL, coming up with something which is replicable and can work in a whole bunch of different contexts. I think that multifactorial part of it is really important and in, in that, again, it reflects the way that kind of policy is developing at a national level, but also globally too. If you take the UN Sustainable Development Goals, much of what we're doing and what we're counting can be aligned with the SDGs. So what we should end up with is a tool which works on different levels in different ways, but at its core, it has, there's a kind of fundamental cohesion to the work that we, that we do. So... What's next for the project, two or three of you, I suppose? What are we hoping to achieve over the next couple of years? Now that we've got a good understanding of what's on the site and the kind of like baseline, we can really start getting into the nitty-gritty of rewilding it and storing habitats and bringing species back and engaging with local communities about the area. And then alongside that, developing more approaches to get more detailed understanding of particular issues as they arise. So, for example, one of the things that we've been discussing is having a better understanding of what's going on beneath the ground and looking at soil quality and microbial communities and how they act as an engine for what's happening above ground, trying to better understand the role that soils and soil communities play in vegetation and other above ground assets. Looking beyond the immediate future of the site, I think what Ian was touching on before was a really interesting area. What we've been discussing is that what we'd like this to be ultimately is not just linked to one particular area of land, but to set up a network of sites which are all setting up their own kind of pieces of research and collaborating and, and solving uh, environmental challenges and then sharing that information and, and working together across a much larger network of places. Um, so we've been talking about setting up similar laboratories in other countries and other areas where different teams can work together and share and like come up with ideas collaboratively. And taking it much bigger than just this one particular area of land. 
And I think if we don't come up with something which is replicable elsewhere, we've probably failed with the NCL. And I'm probably sticking my neck out a little bit. <laughs> that replicability, transferability is absolutely fundamentally important to how we develop the project. Adam, anything you'd like to say around the, what you hope for the future? What we'll be doing over the next five years from a rewilding perspective is just like Chris says, we're going to be seeing um, natural processes coming back to sites and trees will be going in where there are areas that need a little helping hand from an anthropocentric source. And we'll be looking at whether or not it would be possible to return particular missing species which have been extinct in the region or, or even the country for a longer period of time and seeing if they could fit back into this ecosystem. And then that will allow the Natural Capital Laboratory team, if that would happen, to measure what the impacts of that were. And then that reinforces the ability to communicate the benefits that flow from these sorts of projects restoring nature. Yeah, I think that's another like good point around showing these benefits, thinking about how that changes over time. Because as we kind of touched on before, this is a, the, the lab itself, we set it up for a five-year project. But putting a woodland back, you know, it's 100 years, if not more. And one of the things we're trying to do is enable people to see some of the implications of the decisions that they're making now. So we're working over the next couple of years on a virtual reality experience where you can go to the site and then you can look at what that site will be like in different ecological futures, depending on the decisions you make now. And you'll be able to look and hear and feel what it's like to be in those different landscapes. I think that'll be a really interesting way of trying to better understand the consequences of the decisions we make and some of the opportunities that we um, have from like, making different decisions about how we manage our, our natural capital assets. And I think also it's more interesting that the site is small, that it's only 100 acres. Um, if it was a large site, then this would be a much easier and less interesting process in many respects. The fact that it's small, and we're talking about that transition from restoration to rewilding, actually presents a whole bunch of challenges in terms of how we engage around issues of connectivity and coexistence on lots of different levels, whether they're species-focused or how we work with communities and, and perhaps other landowners too. So the fact that the site is reasonably small actually makes it a, a much better laboratory in many ways. Exciting times ahead, I think. Sounds really, really interesting. And I, I look forward to getting together with you all in a year's time and, and getting an update, take two years into the project. Probably time to wrap things up there. So a big thank you to Adam Eagle, to Ian Convery and Chris White for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe, leave a review, and of course, tell your friends all about it. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, take care and goodbye.